Leah, thank you for boldly leading us back into this uh, rhythm again here at City Church. It took a lot of courage. We love you. We're really grateful for you. And we're going to pray for you in just a moment uh, after we read the sermon text. The sermon text is from the book of Jonah. We're doing a, a, a five-week series to start the fall. We're, so this morning, we're actually in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 2. We'll be in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 2. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would invite you to pull that out and follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, there are some blue Bibles in some of the baskets in front of you. Take one of those, use it, and then if you, again, if you don't own one, take it home with you. We, those are for you. Jonah 1, 17 through 3, 2. If, you are, if you're using a blue Bible, page 861. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. And then after I read the text, I will say, this is the last time I'll kind of verbally introduce this, but after I read the text, I will say, this is the word of the Lord and then you will respond together saying, thanks be to God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we begin by giving you praise for the great work that you've done in Leah's life, uh, for raising her up out of the pit, as we were just reading about here in Jonah chapter 2. And Father, we especially want to pray for this woman that Leah just told us about. We, we may never know the rest of her story, but we pray that your spirit would be at work in such great power in, his, in her life and that you would bring just a, an army of additional people to, to keep speaking the truth of Jesus to her. And so we pray for healing, spiritual healing, physical and emotional healing from the trauma that she's experienced. And Lord, I pray for people out there who have experienced similar kinds of trauma. Lord, they may feel like they're in a pit right now, that their life is fainting away. And I pray that you would minister to them, that you would lift up their heads even through the preached word and give our church um, 
the right kind of resources and insight that we need by your grace to love them well, to help them heal. And Lord, would you take this text, I pray that you would just print it on our hearts, that we would leave here totally different people. We ask for this. We plead with you for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Just a warning. Well, you know, the book of Jonah, it kind of begs you to use a lot of puns. You can't really preach Jonah unless you're, you're kind of punny. So I'm going to tell you right now, especially in this message this morning, we are going really deep, really, really deep. If you are looking for one of those shallow messages, this is not the morning for you. I think you'll benefit from it. The hard work is often the most beneficial work. So you've been warned. The book of Jonah does a lot more showing than telling, something that I briefly alluded to when we began our series. By the way, I'm honestly not even sure about this. Is show and tell still a thing at school? I don't know. When I was growing up, it was a very common thing. I had no idea what to do for this, so I, I brought my baseball cards every single year. Um, I can remember mixing in a rock collection at one point. You know, this is the crystal that I bought at the mall stand, and these are some rocks from my driveway, and, and here's some fool's gold. And growing up, everybody that I knew had fool's gold, but none of us actually knew where we got it from, and so we were always suspicious that maybe it was real. So if there was a, you know, an economic crisis, we would be we would probably be just fine. I do remember that there's supposed to be a, a narrative, some sort of point to whatever it is that you were showing, but I sure didn't have one. So Jonah is cathartic for me and hopefully for you as well. It's showing, but it's attached to a very lively narrative with many arresting points. And Jonah therefore ends up showing, or you might say illustrating in very memorable detail some foundational yet challenging biblical concepts like sin, repentance, and especially, in our case this morning, salvation. Is there a more timely subject to discuss right now than salvation? Possibly not. In our day, the idea of salvation has become borderline cartoonish. We associate it with those eccentric evangelists that we see on television, and the, the guys who stand outside sports venues and, and sometimes even on the campus of UF and, and other places with these Jesus save signs that they've made at home. They've duct taped it onto these skinny PVC pipes. That's kind of what we're trying to think about when we hear the word salvation. And quite honestly, a whole lot of folks don't think they need any kind of saving. Thank you very much. Or if they do, it's, it's salvation not by means of a God, in a spiritual sense, but through certain bucket list experiences or, or job accomplishments or maybe romantic exploits, the list goes on and on. The song, Take Me to Church by Hosier, which was Spotify's most streamed song in 2014 and nominated for a Grammy for Song of the Year, that song actually encapsulates these salvation sentiments really well. Here's how I Here's one of the verses, every Sunday's getting more bleak, that is, at, at Sunday church services. A fresh poison, you hear that? Each week, we were born sick, you heard them say it. But my church, referring now to his lover, not his church church, offers no absolutes. She tells me, worship in the bedroom, the only heaven I'll be sent to. 
is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. Command me to be well. That's our age. Salvation, the kind they talk about in church is poison, and then if you want salvation, you get it through romance or your job or whatever the case may be. So we have we got some work to do <laughs> this morning, don't we? Two reflections as we press forward into the Jonah narrative and see what it shows us about the beauty of salvation. Is it a poison or is there actually something beautiful about salvation? When God saves us, number one, he wakes us up. And then when God saves us, he lifts us up. So is there beauty in salvation? The kind we talk about on Sunday morning. I say yes in two reflections. When God saves us, he wakes us up. And then he lifts us up. Let's start with that first reflection. Beauty is found in salvation in this one. God saves us. He, he wakes us up. I think we can all agree that Jonah needed something, right? Because this morning we find him in the belly of a fish, chapter 1, verse 17. So I don't know, who knows if he needed salvation, but he needed something. He had a very pressing need. Recall from the previous two Sundays that we spent in chapter 1 that the Israelite prophet Jonah had rejected the Lord's directive for him to pay a visit to Israel's enemies in Nineveh. And by rejected, we mean that Jonah hightailed it in exactly the opposite direction. So instead of going on mission as God commanded him, he boarded a ship in Joppa that was headed for Tarshish, which would have taken him geographically in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But the Lord had other plans. He pursued Jonah, so Jonah fled, but the Lord pursued Jonah by sending a storm that was so powerful that it threatened to break up the ship and drown Jonah and the mariners. And when it became clear that Jonah's presence on the ship, coupled with his disobedience, was the catalyst for this supernatural storm, he told the mariners to hurl him into the sea. So the mariners tossed him in, eventually, with some reluctance, and then the sea ceased from its raging. And then, plot twist, Jonah didn't drown. Indeed, a, a great fish appointed by the Lord swallowed Jonah whole. That is a pretty good one, isn't it, when it comes to plot twists? And that's why folks who know just one Bible story might very well know this one. In fact, I googled Russell Crowe Jonah, only to find out that he actually hasn't done this movie yet. Clearly the guy is he's asleep at the wheel. VeggieTales, seriously, VeggieTales is basically your best option as of now. However, would you be willing to believe that there's an even greater plot twist in the first verse of chapter 2? Check this out. From the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. In chapter 1, Jonah was, was obstinately trying to flee from the Lord's presence. Okay? And now he's praying to the Lord, which is by nature one of the primary ways to be in the Lord's presence and enjoy his presence here on earth. Quick but important aside, have you ever thought about prayer that way? 
that prayer mainly has to do with, with pursuing and enjoying God's presence. It's not a stretch to say that prayer is the opposite of running from God. Which means that a functionally non-existent prayer life might, not always, but it might indicate that you're on the run, regardless of what you say that you believe. Prayerlessness tends to be the hallmark of self-dependence as opposed to God-dependence. Generally speaking, you're not too busy to pray. You're actually too proud to pray. And more positively, this also means that those who would like to stop running, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm running. I would love to stop. What this means is that you should not simply stop. You should redirect your running energy into prayer energy. We run to God through prayer. Back to the narrative. Why this sudden change in Jonah? Well, fish bellies have this way of making people more spiritual and more prayerful. But there was a lot more to it than that for Jonah, a whole lot more to it. Jonah was coming to terms with the depths, literally, of his need for help. A need that actually didn't have much to do with the fish belly. Two weeks ago in Jonah chapter 1, we saw how running from God takes you down, literally and metaphorically. And indeed, every move that Jonah made is described in the text as going down, which is not an accident. He went down to Joppa geographically, down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship, where the, he, then, he then lies down. Then he gets hurled into the sea and eventually swallowed by a fish. Now here, in chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah is praying in the belly of the fish, but in doing so, his, his poetic prayer, basically a psalm, you can see it here in chapter 2 and verses 2 through 9, is actually looking back, this is important, he's actually looking back at the watery events that led to him ending up in the fish. So there's actually a bit of a, a time hop here that takes us back to the space between verse 15 and verse 17 of chapter 1, between the hurling and the swallowing. So he's been rescued, but now he's looking back on the events that happened in the water before he was swallowed. And in this psalm, Jonah tells us that after the mariners hurled him into the sea, he actually continued Sinking, verse 6. You didn't think he could go any more down, but he kept going down, verse 6. All the way down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Which land? A land he described back in verse 2 as Sheol. That land. Sheol is a, a rich and complex Hebrew term with nuanced meanings in the Old Testament based on context. It's essentially, if I can be as concise as possible here, it's essentially a reference to the bottom-most bottom. The opposite of heaven, associated with, with the realm of the dead or even deadness itself. Sheol is a, is a realm or a land makes the most sense in Jonah chapter 2 given the context. So Jonah plummeted all the way down 
to Sheol, scraping the bottom of the bottom at the roots of the mountain, seaweed wrapped around his head, verse 5. And then from the belly of Sheol, overwhelmed with distress, verse 2, Jonah cried out to the Lord. He scrapes the bottom of the bottom, and then he cries out to the Lord. The consequences of Jonah's sin were, were terrifying, involving such a grave descent that he tasted the land of death itself. That's what he's saying. It's, it's difficult to discern how much of that taste was literal and how much was kind of metaphorical, especially since at the time Sheol was, was thought of as, as being beneath the bottom of the sea. But regardless of the exact nature of this visit into Sheol, the descent, it, it woke Jonah up spiritually. Do you see what happened? Regardless of exactly what, what's going on here with Sheol, it woke him up. The, the lights came on. Jonah, at least he started to realize the error of his ways. So that's complicated, really complicated, as we'll see the next couple of weeks. But he especially noticed the consequences of his sin. You see this, that he was plummeting literally toward the grave. And most poignantly, verse 4, this is the tough part, that the Lord had driven Jonah away from his sight. Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In fact, he kind of confidently told the mariners that. Hey, guys, I am fleeing from the Lord. And they were not enthusiastic about that, ultimately. How about you don't do that? So he was, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And then to some degree, he was getting exactly what he wanted. But it turned out to be this, this devastating reality filled with, with darkness and loneliness and total despair. Which means that the storm wasn't punitive, was it? I have to be careful here, but this is important. This might seem to be the case. At first glance, we, we might be inclined to think of the storm. Oh, he's getting punished. You know, Jonah, I hope you love saltwater taffy, big dog, because you're about to experience the namesake ingredient. You know, like God just kind of throwing his weight around. It might seem like that. But actually, the storm was disciplinary. It was disciplinary, that is. It was a merciful and compassionate wake-up call from God, who is by nature a loving father who intervenes when his kids are going in the wrong direction instead of apathetically checking out and going to Miller's Ale House every night after work. And you might have noticed that Jonah, once he'd been rescued, you know, he's, he's in the fish now, he's praying back in verse 1. You might have noticed that, that Jonah, once he'd been rescued, looked back at these events with, with reverent gratitude for God's control over and, and merciful activity in the storm. Verse 3, for, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Technically, the mariners hurled Jonah into the deep, but they were the Lord's instruments. And the churning sea is... As apocalyptic as the sea seemed to be, Jonah realized that the Lord mercifully orchestrated the whole experience to rouse him from his spiritual slumber. If your hope 
is in the Lord. I know we have a, a diverse spiritual audience here at City Church. If your hope is in the Lord, this has massive implications for how you should process raging storms and churning seas. Last week we saw how the Lord uses storms to expose false gods and, and to change us, a, a kind of double grace. And part of that process typically involves substantial wake-up calls, not only at conversion, but throughout our lives as God continues to reshape us and, and to make us more like Jesus. Some of these wake-up calls can be really taxing and uncomfortable, if not miserable. It can feel like your life is fainting away. Verse 7. But nonetheless, here's what happens. The Lord uses them to reposition us for more God-awareness, for more beholding his splendor and majesty, and ultimately for transformation. And by the way, don't, I mean, we know this about wake-up calls, right? Even though we ourselves schedule the wake-up calls when we stay at hotels, wake up, they're the worst, right? I mean, they're usually, for some reason, they always seem to be around 4.50 a.m., something like that. And when we pick up, we're like, how dare you? We scheduled it, and we were just we're so offended that they would call at 4.50 a.m. But then when we make our flight, or when we make our interview, or whatever the case may be, our attitude about the call changes a bit. We kind of appreciate the outcome. Does this mean that we need to be weirdly happy about storms? You know, wow, I'm suffering, but I love it. You know, that, that house fire, what a grace from the Lord. Is this what we mean? No. However, when the storms come, here's what it does mean. When the storms come, we all have this permission. We have all the permission in the world to be hopeful because we know that the character of God means that he's using this storm for something formative and church is not going to go to waste. And that mindset helps us unlock verse 4, which might be the most difficult verse in the text. Then I said, this is Jonah, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, this is surprising, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Why was Jonah suddenly hopeful? I mean, kind of out of nowhere. I mean, he's, he, the Lord has driven him from his sight, but all of a sudden there's this, this odd turn where he's like, well, I'm hopeful that I'll look upon your holy temple again. What is going on? Why was he saying that he thinks in some way he's going to regain God's presence, this, this holy temple, which was associated with the presence of God? Because Jonah could sense that God was up to something. Maybe because he knew Israel's history, which was filled to the brim with examples of God using storms, literally and metaphorically, for redemptive and transformative purposes. But whatever the case may be, even in this darkness, he could sense that God was up to something. And so there was this glimmer of hope. But Chipper, I mean, so here's a possible objection. This is a salvation sermon, right? And wasn't, wasn't Jonah already saved? I mean, aren't Israelite prophets, spiritually speaking, already awake? I mean, what, what's going on here? Biblically speaking, salvation is more of a process than an event. God wakes us up from spiritual death, and he gives us new life, what we tend to talk about as conversion, and in the Old Testament, the, the basis of this is what Jesus ultimately will do on the cross. And then God spends the rest 
of our earthly lives bringing us through a spiritual transformation process in which we become more like him in character and mission. And then when Jesus returns in glory on the day of the Lord, he will bring us into glory where we will eternally enjoy our heavenly inheritance. It's possible that you've heard this articulated before as we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The, the three tenses of salvation, if you're an English major, whatever. If you like books with big pictures, so maybe you're not an English major, if you like books with big pictures, Israel's history actually illustrates and foreshadows this quite well. God saved them out of Egypt, right? And then he spent the wilderness years effectively getting the Egypt out of the Israelites, transforming them, and then they gained the promised land. The precise moment at which conversion occurs, you know, the, the are saved part, and then the next part of the salvation process begins, you know, being saved. It's actually not always that easy to pin down. Something the Bible itself seems to be more comfortable with than we are today for some historical reasons I won't get into right now. And remember that God uses storms both to wake us up from spiritual death and to continue his ongoing transformative work in us. Which means that the salvation process will entail a fair amount of wake-up storms and the worst of them might come long after conversion. So it's not surprising at all that there's some blurriness in Jonah. There is. And here's the thing, though, to encourage you. I hope that this, this process language comforts those of you who don't feel like you can point to this one overwhelming, you know, power encounter moment in your testimony. You might think that Jonah suggests the need for this, this kind of fish moment. Like, oh, there it is. That's when I was saved. I'm looking at the fish. But Jonah actually shows us just how kind of complicated and winding the salvation experience can be. In practice, a theme that will become even more prominent as Jonah goes on. Now, we've already started to make our way into that second reflection I mentioned earlier, so let's go ahead and and make it official now. Where can we find beauty in salvation? Well, number one, when God saves us, he, he wakes us up. And then here, number two, when God saves us, he, he lifts us up. Earlier I said that something changed in Jonah because he was beginning to see the depths of his need for help. But he wasn't just seeing his need for help. He was experiencing it. He was experiencing the help. Look at verses 5 through 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land, all the way down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, God, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah was as low as you can get. That's what he's saying. I, I literally bottomed out. And the bars of the land, probably a, a reference to the, the weight of the water, or maybe a reference to the gates of Sheol, the bars of the land seem to impound him. Yet God, full of mercy, full of compassion, brought up Jonah's life from the pit. He woke him up, 
And he brought him out, and he used a fish to do it. There's a sermon in there somewhere. You can think of one. And not only did the Lord bring him out, he brought Jonah back into his presence. Because you see, the Lord was never really gone. The Lord is everywhere. But there was distance. And now there's restoration. Remember verse 1. Jonah was once again aware of God's presence, communing with him through prayer. And the plummeting was the prelude to that awareness. Verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. There's that temple language again, this time involving Jonah's prayers, making their way into the Lord's temple and coming to the Lord, reinforcing this, this renewed sense of presence with God. And as Jonah recalled with, with awe in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Presence restored. He's out of the pit, and now he's in the presence of the Lord. That's salvation. We were in a pit, but the Lord brought us out of the pit and back into his blessed presence. That part is important. He, just didn't, he didn't just bring us out of something. He brought us into his blessed presence. We, who is we? We being those who mercifully get the wake-up call and cry out to the Lord for help. Those who pay regard to vain idols, the false gods that we discussed last week, they forsake their hope of steadfast love, verse 8, which only comes from the God of heaven. But those who cry out to the Lord for help get it because, verse 9, here we go, salvation belongs to the Lord. Can't rescue ourselves. Something that Jonah really got the sense of when his head was wrapped in seaweed? I mean, can you imagine Jonah saying to himself, you know, if I just got like a little bit of a flutter kick going, I could escape this. No, I don't think so. But the Lord can and does rescue us when we cry out to him because salvation comes from him and therefore belongs to him. The pastor and Theologian Edmund Clowney and others have said that salvation belongs to the Lord. That phrase is perhaps the most concise summary of the entire Bible. And they might be right. A summary that humbles us, doesn't it? Because we don't have anything to do with this salvation, really. You notice that the Lord didn't save Jonah because he was an Israelite. The Lord didn't rescue Jonah because he was a prophet. The Lord didn't rescue Jonah because... You know, he was in the balance of things, a pretty good dude, especially compared to other people. The Lord didn't rescue Jonah because he had very important ministry things to do. The Lord rescued Jonah simply on account of the Lord's own mercy and compassion, lavishly poured out upon a guy who was on the run. This is what we say we believe as Christians. But fresh reminders humble us because we're always trying to sneak in a little bit of merit on the side. You know, we'll say, yes, it's the Lord's doing. I, I understand that, but it makes sense that he would save me because I'm a pretty good person compared with those other people. I'm a particularly faithful Christian. This is the kind of thing, hopefully you're not saying on Twitter, but you do say sometimes in the quiet of your heart. You might even say something that makes sense. You know, I'm part of a favored people. I'm part of a favored nation. We're always trying to sneak some merit in. 
But this is such a refresher, a refreshing summary as well. It humbles us, but it's refreshing. Because those of you who believe that you're beyond saving are surely not, because salvation belongs to the Lord, not you. That's why you're savable. And those of us who have been sneaking some, some merit into the equation, we're refreshed as well because merit sneaking is miserable. It puts enormous performative pressure on us to keep living in such a way that justifies a secretly meritorious lifestyle. It's awful. And when we feel like we're not cutting it, it's devastating. And when we do feel like we're cutting it, we're spiritually arrogant and we're miserable to be around. So either we're miserable because we think we're not cutting it, or we're miserable in the company of other people. So if you're merit sneaking, and we all do this from time to time, come and be refreshed this morning by God's ownership of your salvation. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. You're bringing nothing to the table. Praise God. It's funny saying that, but you're bringing nothing to the table. Praise God. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the the great fish. So was Jesus. The son of man, I'm just quoting here from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. So was Jesus, the son of man, in the heart of the earth, in the grave, for our salvation. Praise God. Coming up, not by means of a fish, by means of the miraculous resurrection that we will spend some more time on next week, actually. Two objections as we close. I'm going to get to these really briefly. Two objections as we close. Some of you might hear all this and still say to yourself, okay, that's fine, but I'm not sick. I don't, that, that would be fine if I was sick, but I'm not sick. Right, we were just talking about this. I don't need salvation. Nobody needs salvation. I'm going to just make a, a, a quick comment about, here's, and I, I'm trying to say this as graciously as possible, Here's why I don't really believe you when you say that you're not sick and don't need saving. Because you know that other people are sick. Followers, I mean, everybody struggles with this. But let me, oh, let me say this. The longer I pastor, the more that I believe that the thing that keeps people from God is believing that, that all of the sinners are, are all out there that the hypocrites are all out there. Hosier actually said this after he wrote the song that I mentioned earlier. He did an interview with the Rolling Stones, uh, not with the Rolling Stones, but in the magazine, the Rolling Stones. He did an interview and he said, growing up, I always saw the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church, which is fair because there's hypocrisy in every church because it's, it's made up entirely of sinners. There's going to be issues. I get that. But the thing, of, the thing about it is that we tend to see the sin out there. You see what's happening? I saw the sin out there, and so I left. We know there's sin out there. We know there's problems out there. The problem is we just don't believe we're in the company of the problem people. So I think you see it. The problem is I, I just don't think you want to believe that it's an issue with you as well. 
everyone thinks there's bad guys. We just don't want to think we're one of them. So I'll say that. Second objection. There's some of you that are so in the just the tank right now that you would say, I, you know what? I see this about God saving people. I see this about his redemptive purposes in, in storms. I, you know what, man? I, I am hurting so much. I just, I can't believe this. Uh, perhaps you've been following Eliza Fletcher's story this past week. Uh, married 34-year-old uh, kindergarten teacher uh, who was out on a jog, and she was abducted and eventually found dead a few days later. Uh, Eliza was a Christian, and at Eliza's memorial service, her pastor said this about his experience grieving with Eliza's mother, Adele. The pastor of Eliza's church said this about grieving with, with Eliza's mother. We'd, we'd studied Revelation in our church together, and I taught the congregation over and over, no matter what we don't understand about the book of Revelation, which is hard to understand. This thing we do understand. Jesus wins. And at one point, though, Adele said to this pastor, well, it seems like Jesus lost this one. I know there are people out there that feel like that. That feel like Jesus lost this one. And so the pastor, whose last name was Robertson, Pastor Robertson said, I agreed with Adele. It did seem, in some way, like Jesus had lost this one. But when the Bible teaches us that Jesus wins, it ultimately means on the great day, on the great day of the Lord. But that doesn't mean he loses now. The darkness has tried to overcome our little light. But the light pierces through. And that's Jesus. He will win on that day of the Lord. And he has won. Even, even though he might seem to lose some here and there, he hasn't really lost. He has won. He is winning. And he will win. How about that?